Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. Justin Timberlake. Just saying his name is enough to elicit a reaction. For some, he's the hit maker who turned boy band adoration into pop superstardom. For others, he's the prime example of everything to dislike in a celebrity. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, hello. Hi. We are here for the first of a three-part series on Justin Timberlake. I have to be honest with the listeners. We didn't actually (laughs) intend for this to be a three-part series. No. Originally, we were like, is it one? Is it two? And then when we started going there and going there and going there, it's three. It's three. Simply because, guys, there is so much to talk about. Yeah, it's interesting. I think for a lot of people, there's been a sense out there of like, oh, am I not meant to like Justin Timberlake? Why aren't I meant to like him? And I have all of this in inverted comment. Apart from the Super Bowl, apart from that story and maybe some Britney stuff, what is it about him? Why Mm. is he so derided? What's the vibe check on him? What's the vibe check? And I think (laughs) doing this research, I mean, Eilish, our researcher, is amazing. And when she put this together and we went through it with her, it sort of made a bit of sense why his brand is not in tip-top condition. Yeah. But his career kind of still is. Yeah. And we get questions like exactly what you just said, Zara, all the time. What is it about Justin Timberlake that people don't like? Why is he so controversial? So hopefully this three-part series does a good job of explaining that. I think this is also really aptly timed. We have just had the release of Britney Spears' memoir and naturally their relationship and perhaps Justin Timberlake's involvement in her downfall, for instance, repeatedly making jokes at her expense, has been in the press. Definitely. And Justin's scandals definitely go beyond Britney. I mean, the with the way that NSYNC was run behind the scenes was completely shambolic. It was a story I never thought I would care so much about, and I cared deeply. Of course, we're going to talk about the Janet Jackson-Justin Timberlake Super Bowl scandal, commonly referred to as Nipplegate. And, of course, who could forget? I reckon a lot of our listeners probably have them. <laughs> who could forget the marital scandal that happened just a few years ago that we covered on Shameless? when pap photos of him and a co-star holding hands went viral while he was married to Jessica Biel. How that story evaporated will live in my head forever. I think that's such a perfect word for it. It completely evaporated from the public consciousness. I have so many questions. I'm sure you guys listening have so many questions. We are going to attempt to answer them all. Let's rewind to 1981, the year Justin Timberlake was born. All 
Alrighty, Mish. So let's start our story by rewinding all the way back to Jan 31, 1981, when Justin Randall Timberlake was born in Memphis, Tennessee, to parents Janet and Charles. Yeah, Justin's parents divorced when he was just two years old. His mum, Janet, remarried a little while later. Justin was a keen music fan from a very young age and grew up listening to country music thanks to his southern upbringing. By the age of 11, his taste had skewed more towards rhythm and blues, though. Yeah, his father, Charles, was a church choir director in Tennessee, and Justin has said that this is where he first learned to sing. I mean, you can imagine why. And in 1992, when he was just 11 years old, he actually competed on a television talent show, not the one you're thinking of, though. It was called <laughs> Star Search. He performed country songs and competed under the name Justin Randall. What it doesn't I, flow off the tongue. Justin Randall. <laughs> Justin Timberlake flows a little smoother. I want to insert a clip here of Justin at 11 on Star Search because it's just such a fascinating time warp. All right, Zara. So that clip was all right, but Justin unfortunately did not win Star Search. His short experience on the competition show was the beginning of a long career in the limelight, though. He properly took off a year later. Yeah. So according to E! News, sometime in 1992, so after his stint on Star Search, Justin Timberlake attended an open call audition for a revival of the original kids variety show, The Mickey Mouse Club, also known as MMC to fans. Now, according to Rolling Stone, Justin's mother, Lynn, encouraged him with voice lessons and let him try his skills on Star Search. He just loved to be on stage, she says. He wanted to sing all the time. After he auditioned at the mall for Star Search, we went down to Orlando for the show and that's where he heard about the Mouse Club. The Mickey Mouse Club was kind of an American institution. I actually feel a bit of FOMO whenever people talk about it these days yeah. because it comes up in so many of our scandal series and yet it was never around when we were kids. No, well, it was one of those shows. It was actually created by Walt Disney himself, which I think is kind of a cool fact. And it originally aired in the 1950s. And what's fascinating about the show is I sort of thought it was such an institution that it just ran in perpetuity from there, but it didn't. It sort of ran for a few years, then would be put on hiatus for like a decade. Then it would come back and then it was kind of put revived, on hiatus again. Yeah. And it was revived at different points in the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. So it's so interesting to me. That's kind of why it probably stayed so relevant because it did what a lot of shows don't do, which was deliberately take a break for a very long amount of time. Yeah. And by doing that, had so much staying power. Now, Justin's audition for the Mickey Mouse Club went extremely well, and he became an official MMC cast member for the new season of the show. His role included singing, dancing, hosting, and acting in short skits, all in front of a live audience. His first season went to air in 1993, when he was just 12 years old. I just... I know I probably should have touched on this earlier, but I am really fascinated by this idea that even when his mother is being interviewed about Justin Timberlake, the idea is that he just loved to be on stage. But how often is a kid of 11 and 12 already on two television shows? It's nuts. Like, it's a lot. And I think I probably should have paused on that earlier. <laughs> yeah. Because it's just, it's a lot to put a kid into. Yeah, and I imagine... 
imagine, look, he might have been super, super passionate. I at, completely agree. At 12, if you gave me the opportunity to be on TV shows, I would have jumped at the chance. But it is interesting that his parents were actively encouraging that and enabling that kind of spotlight to be on their son. Justin's castmates on the Mickey Mouse Club included some familiar faces. He featured alongside Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera and Ryan Gosling. Yeah, it's such a famous quartet now, those four being on the Mickey Mouse Club at the same time. Like it's just, it's so wonderful watching those clips back of all of them as kids, having no idea what they were all going to become. It was like an A-lister factory. Crazy. Decades later, Justin told Ellen DeGeneres that around this time, he and Ryan Gosling were actually roommates. He said, actually, funnily enough, his mother had to keep her job in Canada the second year that we did the TV show. And my mum was his guardian for like six months. So we lived together. We were probably a little closer than the rest of the kids that were on the show, just because, you know, we had to share a bathroom. Wild. While Justin lived with Ryan for a time, he also made friends with another cast member of the show, the 16-year-old singer and dancer J.C. Chassé. According to a biography on A&E, Justin even had his hair cut similarly to J.C., because he looked up to JC as a bit of an older brother figure. Yeah. Now, the reason we mentioned JC here is because we want you to remember his name because he's going to pop up later. If only it was an easier name to say, JC Chassé. <laughs> Speaking to The Hollywood Reporter, Justin reflected on this time in his life. We were at the age when you just soak in everything. We were taking acting classes, music classes, dance classes. We were learning how coverage and editing and cinematography work and being put in front of a live audience, learning how to engage the crowd to get a laugh Honestly, it was like SNL for children. The Mickey Mouse Club ran until 1995 and then 14-year-old Justin was a part of the show until it ended. Now, once his two-year stint on MMC had finished up, he briefly went back to school. He told Rolling Stone, I went back to school for a year and got into trouble, mailbox bashing and just being a delinquent. I'm just glad I didn't have to go to regular high school. I would have gotten arrested by now. I was kind of like Ferris Bueller. (laughs) Yeah, around this time, a budding musician named Chris Kirkpatrick was introduced to Lou Perlman, a music manager who had recently had massive success with the group, the Backstreet Boys. Mm. Now, Lou was really impressed with 24-year-old Chris and promised Chris that if he could put together another boy band, he would fund and manage this boy band as well. So Chris was like, okay, I'm going to begin my search for the new Backstreet Boys, essentially, the new boy band on the scene. And 14-year-old Justin Timberlake was top of his list. So fascinating that there's such an age gap here that a 24-year-old is looking at a 14-year-old thinking we could be in the same band. Now, upon recommendation from a talent agent, Chris reached out to Justin, who had already been thinking about what his career in music would look like. As it turned out, Justin and his older friend, the 19-year-old JC Chassay, had been writing and recording demos ever since the Mickey Mouse Club had wrapped up. So Justin recommended JC to Chris for the boy band, and suddenly we had three members. One was 24, one was 19, One was 14. (laughs) It's not the ingredients I would think that would maketh one of the biggest boy bands in pop history. But, I mean, that's probably why I'm not putting together bands for my day job. (laughs) Now, two other members joined the fold. We had 18-year-old Joey Fatone, a singer who Chris knew from his days at Universal, and a 16-year-old called Lance Bass, who was recommended by Justin's vocal coach. 
I always find it fascinating when we talk about bands. I know we've probably had this conversation about the Spice Girls before where it's actually quite clinical how Mm. these things are thrown together. You see the end product and think, oh, of course it makes sense. But when you see how much it is manufactured, even One Direction on X Factor, we've done a three-part series on them. It's, It's really, really fascinating to me how luck comes into this, but also it sort of feels like there's this algorithm that they use. Yeah. Well, I know like on a recent-ish, I mean like a month ago episode, you used the analogy of an in- like ingredients or a recipe. Yeah. This is the definition of that. Each band member is a different ingredient to make a recipe. Exactly. Now, just before, for context, Lance joined the band, there actually was briefly another guy called Jason who'd been singing his parts. <laughs> it was when Jason was part of the band that the term NSYNC was coined because it used the last letter of each member's first name. So you had Justin, Chris, Joey, Jason, JC. Sort of not the most um, obvious Obvious. way to create a band (laughs) name, but I don't mind it. I really like it. Yeah. So after Jason left the group and Lance joined, the other members started nicknaming him Lanston so that they could keep the band name. (laughs) Yeah. So in sync, and I want to say you and I clearly pronounce this differently. I pronounce it like in sync. Yeah, which I'm sure is technically right. So, but colloquially, I need to say in sync. Guys, just just let us say it whatever way we say it. You know what boy band we're talking about. It's going to take all the willpower to me to repronounce this. <laughs> now, of course, they were a brand new boy band. They had officially formed in 1995, which was the same year that Mickey Mouse Club ended. Their manager was Lou Perlman of the Backstreet Boys. And it seemed that they were destined for success. But success didn't just fall into their laps, Zara. It took a little bit of time to get the wheels in motion. Yeah, so after forming, they were pretty swiftly sent over to Europe to work on their debut album. And they worked on that for nearly two years before they made their official debut as a band. I wonder if that's also because you had like a random 14-year-old in the band (laughs) who was still a child. Grow up. Yeah, Yeah, now funnily enough, they actually had their first major breakthrough in Europe rather than the US. Their self-titled debut album, which dropped in 97 when Justin now was 16 years old, charted in Germany, Switzerland and Austria and sold over 800,000 copies in Europe upon release. Wild. Cracking the American market took a little bit more time and effort, though. In March 1998, they released a US version of that first album, which did perform sluggishly on American charts. It sat at just number 82 on the Billboard 200 five weeks after release. That's like a disappointing result given that is where these guys lived, where they grew up. You would want the people you went to school with to find you relevant, but 82 on the chart isn't all that impressive. Well, I can imagine it being kind of confusing because I I imagine it would make more sense to be able to nail your home country rather than other ones. But to have these kind of success elsewhere and then to think, oh, well, this can clearly be replicated at home was not the case. However, what's so fascinating about this is it was one Disney Channel performance that turned the whole thing around. Now, this Disney Channel performance was actually a slot that was meant to be performed from the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. But the Backstreet Boys Mish had to pull out. Yeah. A member of the Backstreet Boys, AJ McLean, revisited this years later. He said, I'll never forget it. It was this Disney performance and we were burnt out and we were just like, we don't want to do it. And the minute we said no, NSYNC said yes. Now, remember, of course, both bands were being managed by Lou Perlman. So Lou Perlman has both bands and now he's officially got 
to competitors because this performance for the Disney Channel turned out to be massive when it came to NSYNC's success. The audience lapped this up. It was a total breakthrough moment for the band. As Lance Bass's mother, Diane Bass, once said, they showed that concert daily on the Disney Channel for months. JC said, we went from selling 5,000 units a week to selling 50,000 to 60,000 per week. Yeah, just such a massive jump. And keep in mind, you have now these two competing boy bands who are managed by exactly the same person Mm. and one was essentially subbed in for the other the new kids on the block were subbed in for you know the the old old hands hands at this now we are going to talk a little bit more about Lou Pelman because he might not sound like an interesting name to you right now but I promise he will be to you in about 20 minutes (laughs) after the break All right, Zara. So let's zoom out from Justin a little bit and the band and have a look at their manager, Lou Pearlman, like you said we were going to do. We have to note that before we even start unpacking this, Justin Timberlake has never spoken publicly about Lou Pearlman except for a very short statement, like a sentence-long statement when Lou died in 2016. Yeah, so who was Lou Pearlman? Well, he was a 43-year-old businessman who actually got his start leasing aircraft to brands for advertising. And in the mid-'80s, he became fascinated with new kids on the block – the boy band. I know I just referred to NSYNC as New Kids on the Block, but the actual <laughs> band name after he rented them a private plane. Now, Lou realised very quickly just how much money there was in boy bands. So to cut a long story short, he thought he'd just give it a go. His first venture was the Backstreet Boys, who launched in 93, and NSYNC, who followed a few years later, and he was clearly very good at it. Yeah, a huge talent. Now, a huge conflict of interest for Lou Pearlman was, of course, to be managing two of the biggest boy bands in the world (laughs) at the same time. As the Backstreet Boys' AJ McLean later said, it was literally the biggest don't shit where you eat scenario and it really started to bother us. Can you imagine though? Oh my God, it would be so irritating, particularly if the if you're the Backstreet Boys oh, yeah. and you see your manager go off and create this brand new boy band that's very similar to your boy band. It's like the only competitor you could find at that time. Well, maybe not the only <laughs> one, but the biggest you could find at that time. As you might have guessed, Lou Perlman was an incredible incredibly controversial and divisive figure. Now, our researcher Eilish actually learned a lot about his, I guess, dodgy dealings by watching the 2019 documentary The Boy Band Con, The Lou Pillman Story. And a lot of the quotes we're about to read you in the next section are actually from this documentary. Yeah, the crux of it all is this. Lou thought both of his bands would perform better if he pitted them against each other (laughs) and made them work really fucking hard. Now, Lance Bass from NSYNC said, what Lou told us about the Backstreet Boys worked like a charm. He pitted us against each other and we stayed against each other for our whole entire careers. I wouldn't even talk to the Backstreet Boys. I was scared of them. Yeah, I'm going to insert a clip here as well of Chris Kirkpatrick from NSYNC about this rivalry as well. Lou would come to us and be like, oh, can you 
believe the Backstreet Boys. Can you believe what they're doing now? This is ridiculous, whatever. And then you'd go to them and be like, oh, can you believe what the NSYNC boys are doing? They're not listening to me at all. They're doing this, they're doing this. You guys are so much better. I mean, if I were the Backstreet Boys, I would have hated us too, you know? I just, like, the goal of Lou Pearlman to be so obvious with his pitting of the bands against each other? Yeah, it reminds me, I don't know if this is like a really wild comparison to make, but it reminds me of, um, you know, like historically football teams in the AFL are taught that there are like these long-standing rivalries that go for 100 <laughs> years. And when you're told there's a rivalry, you just sort of swallow it. And you say, buy into it. Yeah, yeah, it's like I'm an Essendon supporter, so I just hate Carlton. Like, it's in my blood, <laughs> yeah. right? It's sort of like this. It's like when someone's telling you this is the enemy, everybody just like drinks the Kool-Aid yeah. and you are pitted against each other. I'm sure these members of the band probably had never had any conversations with each other until they got much older and realised who the real villain in the story was. No, and having an enemy is such a galvanising thing. Yeah, you're it's right. Like when it's you both motivating. Hate, yeah, when you both hate the same thing, that's such a bonding experience. Yeah. Well, it, it also in the Beckham documentary that was out a, a month or two yes. ago, Manchester United talked about how they kind of wore it as a badge of honour that they were the hated ones and it was why they felt they were so successful because it felt like them against the world. Everyone was the enemy. I imagine there was some ingredient of success in this sort of dynamic. Maybe we need an enemy. I know. We need (laughs) heaps of enemies. So Lou is managing these two massive groups. He's stoking the flames of a rivalry between them. But that wasn't the only issue. There was also this massive issue of money, Mish. Yeah. If you guys remember the figure that was noted a little earlier, that after the Disney Channel concert special was airing, NSYNC began to sell fifty to 60,000 records per week you would think that the members of the band were earning pretty insane amounts of money. But that wasn't the case. According to Lance Bass, under the management of Lou Perlman, the bandmates were earning, he says, $35 a day in the form of a daily allowance. Yeah, at this time, NSYNC were pretty much permanently on tour. And when they weren't on tour, they were doing promo at radio stations and photo shoots for teen magazines. Like, they were working. Chris Kirkpatrick said at one point that they were doing 18-hour days. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. No, they would be working so hard to be relevant. By 1998, they had been working nonstop on that kind of schedule for nearly three years. It was, as you would expect, exhausting work. And to this point, they had not received an official payment or salary, just their $35 a day. This is wild to me. To the point when even when we were going through the research for this, I was like, this just can't be right. How is this? Like, how is it? like this. I completely agree. At this point in time, when they're earning 35 bucks a day, they had sold over 10 million records. I honestly never thought I'd care about NSYNC this month. (laughs) And I care so much about this. 10 million records, $35 a day. Now things really began to sour between NSYNC and Lou Pearlman after one fateful dinner in Los Angeles sometime in late 98. This is how Lance Bass recalled it. I remember this one trip to LA that I was so excited about because Lou was hyping up the fact that this is going to be our first check presentation. And at this point, we've worked so hard and we've got zero. The money's all kind of accumulated and they're just going to give it all to us in one batch in a check. So they're expecting a huge amount of money, six (sighs) figures at least. Imagine being kind of naive as well to be like, oh, this maybe is how musicians are paid in one check after three years. Yeah. And you can imagine that this carrot, this imaginary carrot would keep you going in front of them. Yeah. So his quote went on. 
Lou takes us to a very lavish dinner. We had all our family there. You start thinking in your head, what could it be? Is it six figures? Is it one million? Like, what am I about to fall into right now? My life is about to change. I open up the envelope, see the check, and oh my gosh, like my heart sunk. I couldn't believe the number I was looking at. The check was $10,000. And not to sound ungrateful, because $10,000 is a lot of money, but when you compare it to how many hours we had put into this group for years, it didn't even touch minimum wage at all. Imagine that. I He's also so, bless him, saying $10,000 and to say not to sound ungrateful. It's like, you don't sound ungrateful. This was over three years. You're, you're selling 10 million copies of albums. You don't sound ungrateful for being upset with 10 grand. Yeah, 100%. For what it's worth, the Backstreet Boys were also pretty much going through the same thing. According to AJ McLean, we started selling out stadiums. We started selling out arenas, started doing all this stuff. And we started looking at our bank accounts and it was just like, something is not adding up. Lou's getting paid. The promoters are getting paid. But some of the Backstreet Boys couldn't pay for their car payment or couldn't pay for their apartment. God bless the whistleblowers, AJ McLean and Lance Bass, for giving us so much gossip. And Chris Kirkpatrick as well. Yeah. Now, Lance Bass recalled that his dinner with Lou Pearlman and NSYNC in LA was the moment they knew something was wrong. He said, I felt like someone had punched me in the face. It was the first time that I thought to myself, oh my gosh, something's wrong. Like there's something wrong with Lou. He's lying to us. I went back to the hotel and I ripped up the check. Yeah, I think they probably needed like a real moment like this to be like, Line in the sand. Yeah, this is not right. So at this point, JC asked his uncle, who was a lawyer, He later noted that, of course, he didn't have any money to hire his own lawyer to look over the original contract that the boys at NSYNC had signed. The lawyer, JC's uncle, apparently said, this is one of the worst contracts I've ever seen in music history. So does this mean that no one ever looked over this when they first signed it? I think it must, which is wild to me. It's wild. I think it also explains why Lou Pearlman was invested in having a band with half of them being teenagers. Yeah. You had a you had a I mean, Justin Timberlake was fourteen. He was sixteen when the album came out. I mean the oldest person was twenty four. But still no one had like this extreme level of experience in the industry. Mm. And clearly I think what's most wild to me is no advisors. Yeah. Now the way that the contract was structured essentially meant that Lou was the sixth member of NSYNC and also the sixth member of the Backstreet Boys as well. So very talented guy, Lou Pearlman. <laughs> he sold this idea into the boys by telling them that it was actually saving them money, that by doing things this way they wouldn't have to pay a manager. A manager who might be able to give them a another perspective. Now, there was a lot going on in this contract, but basically what you guys need to know is that Lou was essentially stealing from his bands and he was able to do it through that elaborate sixth member setup that he had with both. Allegedly, that setup allowed him to pocket 90% of each of the band's earnings for himself. He must have been rolling in it. How was he hiding this? Imagine if he's like rocking up to these dinners in, in like a, a Rolls, Rolls Royce. Royce. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody else can't pay their car loan. The Backstreet Boys and Enzik finally spoke frankly with each other about Lou and the fact that they were both getting ripped off by their shared 
manager and this is when things started to change. But the rivalry that Lou had created between these two bands meant, as I said earlier, they wouldn't have had conversations about anything. So by keeping Mm. them so far away from each other and kind of, you know, fanning the flames of this maybe hatred, you know that they're not going to speak to each other about what's going on to share experiences. It's both super dodgy and super clever. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at Justin specifically, he was 17 years old at this point in the timeline in 1998. So it was really his guardian's responsibility to supervise his contract and work schedule with Lou. His mum, Lynn, said years later, I felt so insufficient that I let somebody take advantage of my son. But yet I was so angry with Lou when I found out what he did. Of course, every parent is protective of their child and I just wanted to kill him like everybody else. I just wanted to kill him. I can also imagine that you just assume rightly or wrongly, that people are decent. And unfortunately, this guy does not seem decent. Yeah, I I get that. But I also think, I don't know if this is too harsh as a parent, if your kid is 14 signing up to a boy Mm. band, surely the one responsibility you have is to get the experts in the room, like lawyers, to look over what the hell they're signing. Mm. Like, I do think you have some onus of responsibility here. I can see a 14-year-old boy, though, being like, do not embarrass me. Do not you can't, get involved. As a 14-year-old, he wouldn't be able to sign without a parent I know, there. I know. So he wouldn't be able to do anything without an adult there. I know. She's clearly kicking herself over it yeah. even years later. Yeah. Now, it became very obvious at this point in the story that NSYNC were going to have to take legal action against Lou if they ever wanted to see any money at all. Yeah. Luckily for the band, they their lawyers pinpointed a minuscule clause in their original contract that stated Lou was required to sign the group to an American label within a set amount of time, which he hadn't actually come good on. Now, because they got their start in Europe, they were actually originally signed with a German label. According to the lawyers, the contract between NSYNC and Lou Perlman was technically void because he had failed to follow through on his promise of an American label. According to to Lance Bass, that was, and I quote, a little nugget of hope for the band. Yeah, so NSYNC jumped ship from Lou's record label and signed Jive Records in the US. And in response, Lou said, nah, I'm going to sue you for $150 million. Mm. Huge. Huge. As per Rolling Stone in October 99, On Tuesday, Lou Perlman's record label Transcontinental went to federal court and filed a $150 million lawsuit in an effort to stop NSYNC's move to Jive to prevent the band from performing a recording under the name NSYNC and to force NSYNC to return masters recorded this year in preparation of their second album. I think I just pronounced NSYNC (laughs) three different ways in that one sentence. (laughs) Now it went on. In response to the suit, the InSync camp issued a statement. Transcontinental's conduct with regard to InSync is the most glaring, overt and callous example of artist exploitation that the music industry has seen in a long time. We look forward to the opportunity to air the full facts and will do so in the weeks to come. InSync members insist they were misled by Lou Perlman when they first signed on with him and that they have not seen enough of the profits that they generated by selling 8 million albums in America alone. In response to the statement from NSYNC at the time, a lawyer for Transcontinental Records spoke to Rolling Stone. You can't have agreements and then just terminate them willy-nilly. Oh, it's back. It's back. (laughs) This is an unprecedented move. We still don't understand it. The Rolling Stone piece went on. He insists Transcontinental had been in the process of renegotiating and sweetening the group's deal when members bolted for jive. The lawyer said they didn't like what they were getting, so they played the termination 
card. I mean, what's a sweetener when you've been paid $10,000 for three years of work? Like, <laughs> So silly. Yeah. So court proceedings began with the band fighting to leave Lou's contract and Lou fighting to keep them under contract. Eager NSYNC fans even formed prayer circles outside the courtroom because at this point, obviously, the case was extremely high profile and their stands wanted to get behind them. Luckily for Justin and his band, the lawsuit was settled by December 1999. They actually had mediation outside of court for an undisclosed amount and they were free to join Jive Records and leave their contract with Lou. Thank God, as per Rolling Stone, the boys claimed the group's original contracts with Transcontinental were drastically unfair, allocating far too much money and control to Perlman and that the group had no choice but to seek relief elsewhere. The piece went on. But how much had the two record companies, along with Perlman, earned off NSYNC? $10 million? $50 million? $150 million? That kind of information would put the group's earnings in some perspective. And perhaps that was one reason Perlman, who earlier insisted on a full trial to clear his name, <laughs> eventually settled with Jive out of court. Did Perlman, who appeared rather uncomfortable in the Orlando courtroom, sitting 20 feet away from the NSYNC members, really want to take the stand and answer pointed questions under cross-examination about his NSYNC bounty? And how would a jury react if earnings dwarfed that of group? members. Mm. I mean, he was never going to fly with a jury. No, I would so love to know what amounts actually changed hands in the I would love to know. Yeah. So InSync made it out relatively unscathed with a brand new album worth of songs ready for their new label Jive Records. To put things in perspective for the main character of this series, all of this went down. All of this drama happened the year that Justin turned 18 years old. Yeah, quite an introduction to the music industry as an adult, hey? Dare I say a pretty, a, I know this will sound backwards, maybe the best kind of introduction to have this young so that you are incredibly savvy and business-minded from the age of 18 onwards. Yeah, I mean, you'd hope it wouldn't make you too cynical, but I also think it's often worth having some element of cynicism going into business dealings. Yeah, have your wits about you. But then the other part of it, that we spoke about recently on our Call Her Daddy series is it's like you don't want too much cynicism. Mm. You need a little bit of trust to get deals done. So you would hope this had like the right amount of impact on Justin Timberlake at 18. Now, InSync's first album with Jive titled No Strings Attached was released in March 2000 and was subsequently the best-selling album of that entire year. The title of the album and its massive lead single, Bye Bye Bye, oh. were a thinly veiled allusion to their newfound freedom from Lou Perlman's contract. It gives that song new meaning. I know, doesn't new it? Wait. As for the Backstreet Boys, they had to deal with the same terrible contract that obviously NSYNC were under. Eventually, after many complex legal proceedings that apparently took about 20 lawyers and judges in three different states to untangle, the Backstreet Boys and Lou Perlman also reached an undisclosed settlement out of court and they parted ways in October 1998. Yeah, so what happened to Lou? Well, in 2008, he actually pleaded guilty to conspiracy, money laundering and false bankruptcy proceedings after he was accused of running a pretty monumental Ponzi scheme that saw trusting investors pouring a lot of money into fictional companies. He passed away in 2016, age 62, in 
Custody, no less. After his death, Justin Timberlake broke his nearly 20-year silence on Lou Pearlman and tweeted, I hope he found some peace. God bless and rest in peace, Lou Pearlman. Mm. So let's talk about other facets of Justin Timberlake's life, Zara, because around this time in the timeline, he had actually found one of his first love interests. Yeah. By early 1999, Justin Timberlake was dating the sweetheart of America, Britney Spears. Of course, the two had known each other since they were kids, having met on the set of Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. So who was Britney Spears at this point? Well, Justin may have been blowing up with his boy band, but by early 1999, Britney Spears was essentially in another stratosphere. She was literally taking the industry by storm. It was on January. January 12, 1999, that she had released her first album, Baby One More Time, when she was just still a teenager as well. She was only 18 years old. Yeah, you forget how young these two were when they Mm. were together and in the news cycle that much. Now, the hugely successful title track had been released the previous year, which sparked some pretty big controversy as Britney was underage in the music video and some people felt that the outfits and dance moves were inappropriate for a 17-year-old. And I think this was arguably the beginning of the overwhelming public commentary about Britney Spears's sexuality, but I think we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah. Baby One More Time, the album, not the single, totally blew up on release. It sold 1.8 million copies in America alone in the first two months. Yeah. According to Justin, he'd actually always had feelings for Britney, as he told GQ years later. I was in love with her from the start. I was infatuated with her from the moment I saw her. Of course, we also now know Britney's perspective on these early days of their relationship. She reflected on meeting and falling in love in her recent memoir. She wrote about them knowing each other through the Mickey Mouse Club and then actually touring together once she had become a pop star and he was a member of NSYNC. Of that time, she wrote this. Justin and I had stayed in touch after the Mickey Mouse Club and enjoyed spending time together on the tour. Having shared that experience at such a young age gave us a shorthand. We had so much in common. We met up when I was on tour and started hanging out during the day before shows and then after shows too. Pretty soon I realised that I was head over heels in love with him, so in love with him it was pathetic. Yeah, she went on. Whenever he and I were anywhere in the same vicinity, his mum even said this, we were like magnets. It was weird, to be honest, how in love we were. I don't know if when you're younger, love is a different thing, but what Justin and I had was special. He wouldn't have even had to say or do anything for me to feel close to him. It was weird, to be honest, how in love we were. So we've got two of the most famous teenagers in America dating, (laughs) which apparently begged the question, what's going on with their sex life? And in particular, what's going on with the status of Britney's virginity? Yeah, the public was so obsessed with Britney's virginity that she was constantly asked about it, essentially in every interview she did. A mystery businessman even offered her $9 million to sleep with him in the year 2000, which obviously sent the tabloid media into a frenzy as well. It wasn't just the virginity thing, though. The media was also pretty atrocious when it came to just general reporting about Britney Spears. Just take this stand first, which was published in the Guardian newspaper by journalist Elizabeth Wurzel as an example. The Guardian published, she doesn't have a great voice. She can't write songs. She isn't even that beautiful. And yet, aged just 18, this Baptist girl from Kentwood, Louisiana, has become the undisputed queen of pop. 
Yeah, here's another part of that article. It is, no doubt, a pain in the ass to be all tits and ass. But my God, she's so good at it that I wish she would simply embrace this role and stop trying to deny it. So how did Britney feel about all these people commenting on her body and her virginity? Well, in her memoir, she actually kind of referenced this by writing, I had a hard time being as carefree as Justin seemed. I couldn't help but notice that the questions he got asked by talk show hosts were different from the ones they asked me. Everyone kept making strange comments about my breasts, wanting to know whether or not I'd had plastic surgery. Mm, she also clarified that it was actually her management that played a big part in pushing the eternal virgin narrative. She wrote, given that I had so many teenage fans, my managers and press people had long tried to portray me as an eternal virgin. Never mind that Justin and I had been living together and I'd been having sex since I was 14. Despite the icky media coverage, particularly around Britney's body, Britney and Justin really did seem to love each other, especially in those earliest days of their relationship. In the year 2001, Britney told The Observer, With Justin, it's still the same as I felt two years ago, but it is a deeper love now than when I was younger. Like, we've gone through so much together and we've known each other since we were 12 years old. We know each other inside and out. Yeah, for his part, Justin told the British tabloid The Star, I love her with all my heart. She's been my best friend forever. Now, these quotes came in the same year that we got perhaps the most iconic couple moment on any red carpet ever. Everyone knows what we're talking about. When 19-year-old Britney Spears and 20-year-old Justin Timberlake attended the 2001 American Music Awards in matching denim outfits. Yeah, as per People magazine, few red carpet moments defined the fashion of an entire decade, quite like Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake showing up to the AMAs in matching head-to-toe denim did for the 2000s. Between her curtain Bart patchwork gown paired with a rhinestone choker necklace and his lightwashed Canadian tuxedo and denim cowboy hat ensemble, the pop stars and then it couple looked like a tacky Y2K dream. It's just the best the outfit best. duo ever. I don't think there's been a couple costume that may have been emulated so many times. Posh and Bex wearing all matching leather is up there for me, but you're right. Nothing and even scratches. Yes, the well. purple wedding outfits perhaps gets a look in, but I still think Brittany and Justin take the cake. I agree. And they were absolutely it at this point in time, only their relationship breakdown was about to become so controversial and so confusing it would become tabloid fodder for the next 20 years. But all of that, Mish, on our next episode of Scandal. If you want to listen to it, you know you can right now. All you have to do is subscribe to Shame More wherever you get your podcasts on Apple or Spotify because the whole three-part series is live right now if you're a subscriber. Yeah, you guys always get early and ad-free versions of the episodes. So definitely subscribe to Shame More if you cannot wait another couple of weeks to get the whole series. A massive, massive thank you to our researcher, Eilish Gilligan, our audio producer, Annabelle Lee, and to you, Zara McDonald, for being the best co-host in the world. Oh, thanks right back at you. We will be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye, guys. Bye. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.